Brick Moon Fiction presents Floating Terror by Kevin R. O'Hara Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle It was the most beautiful sight Daphne had ever seen. Hundreds of tiny luminescent jellyfish floated through the air, pulsing and spiraling with all of the magic of the first fluffy snowflakes of winter. Completely defying gravity, they rose several feet off the lab table before somersaulting and cascading back down. Those that touched the table surface were only there for a few moments before rising up, starting the cycle anew. This is amazing, Rashid. Brian obviously loves them too. Oh, oh, don't touch, sweetie, Daphne said while holding her three-year-old boy, Brian, before the miraculous flying creatures. He reached out with his hands, but she carefully pressed them away. Rashid Kundi, a 43-year-old Pakistani scientist with a dark black beard and a wide grin, waved his hand through the jellyfish school, causing an air current to gently scatter them about in all directions. Don't worry so much, Daphne. The toxin would only knock the boy out for a few minutes, tops, he chuckled. I'm kidding, of course. They are completely safe. The nematocytes on these moon jellies aren't strong enough to sting humans. Go ahead. A short-haired brunette in her early thirties, Daphne Greenlee, was also a biologist, though her specialty focused on ecology rather than biotechnology. Rashid had been a mentor of hers back from her graduate study days at Purdue University. She was excited when he called her to share his recent work, though she had no idea it would be so groundbreaking. What gives them buoyancy in the air? Are you somehow introducing helium into their system? She asked, while guiding Brian's small hand through the cloud of jellyfish. He giggled with delight. No, you know that helium wouldn't support their weight outside of water. It's hydrogen. Wait. Is that the compressed gas you're spraying across the table? She asked, pulling Brian back again. No, no, that's a tiny amount of pure carbon dioxide. Effectively, they are feeding on it, and then they're outputting biohydrogen. I've done some case splicing of the jellyfish with algae, uh, Chlamydomonas reinhardti, among other plankton. Daphne smiled as she continued to play with the floating wonders. You're telling me you've built upon the Swiss carbon-negative microalgae model to make flying jellyfish? For funsies? Rashid laughed. Oh, Daphne, you know me too well. I'm going to start selling them as novelty pets, the pet rock of 2028. I bet you had a pet rock as a kid, she nudged him in the arm. You know, because you are old. Seriously, though, what's your angle with this? It doesn't seem practical enough for creating a biofuel. He turned off the gas valve and the tiny creatures continued to spread around the lab, some already up to the ceiling while most of them stayed about two feet above the table. I just wanted to see what I could do with re-engineering simple organisms. And actually, yes, Maxwell Worth has put forth a pretty generous offer to bring me onto his biofuel project to compete with the Swiss. Daphne grimaced at this. I used to work with Max. He's a blowhard and a chauvinist. He's also a shitty scientist. Blowhard chauvinist, sure, but attacking his science, that's hitting below the belt. He's made some impressive advancements, and there is no denying how much money he has donated for scholarships. But yes, I remember you complaining about him years ago. Do you know why I called you? For me to talk you out of it? She smiled. I honestly thought you just wanted to catch up and show off your latest side project. I know you've been working pretty hard on solving our carbon emission problems. I want to bring you on board. Maxwell is focusing on the energy production possibilities, but I think there is a bigger opportunity for carbon reduction, and I mean on a global scale. These guys love to eat carbon monoxide. They can't get enough of it. 
The more they consume, the more they grow and reproduce. I'm not sure we can scale the fuel output to Max's ambitions, but imagine something like these little guys producing enough hydrogen for themselves to float a couple hundred meters up and spending all their time filtering out man-made carbon emissions. Daphne stared at the jellyfish. Clearly she was intrigued and her mind was now going a million miles an hour. After a few moments, she responded, to have enough of them freely propagating. That could tip things too far the other way, though. At this size, the life cycle is very short, and the population couldn't sustain itself outside of specific atmospheric conditions and temperatures. Look, I can see you working all of this out, and there is a lot left to work out. This is ground floor. Max will get a full lab funded for a decade to figure it all out. We've got a shot at changing the world through a breakthrough renewable energy source or at getting a jump on reversing 200 years of carbon pollution. Rashid paused and looked her in the eyes. Tell me you are in, Daphne. Daphne thought hard and then looked at Brian. The small boy was in utter wonderment at the tiny flying jellies. His expression seemed to be enough for her. When Brian was five, he asked his mother, What does a scientist do, Mommy? Daphne poured him a cup of juice at the dinner table as she answered, well, that's what mommy is. Scientists search for answers. They ask a lot of questions and come up with ideas. And then they spend most of their time trying to disprove those ideas. Why? he asked as he put down his pizza and gulped the juice. Because they hate themselves. <laughs> Just kidding. To get to the truth, you need to prove things to the point where other people believe them. Science doesn't stop until it has the answers, and usually the answers just bring up new questions to work on. So scientists are always good? he asked. Well, no, she answered. Sometimes scientists can hurt people, too. That's why Mommy became a scientist. Humans discovered ways of making energy with things called fossil fuels. You know, from dinosaurs. Rawr. These fuels helped us to do great things like make cars go and factories run, but we didn't realize that when we used them too much, we hurt the planet. The child didn't seem overly interested, but couldn't help himself when it came to asking more questions. How did it hurt? She filled her mug with coffee and sat beside the curious blonde-haired boy. We filled up the sky with pollution, and over a long time that started to warm up the world. This caused things like bigger hurricanes, some animals completely dying off, and other really bad stuff. I wanted to fix that before it was too late for the world, which it still might be. Upon seeing his expression, she decided to add, I'm kidding. It isn't too late. Mommy? Yes, dear? Would the earth be better without humans? Would the animals not die off if people were all gone? Daphne thought for a moment and quietly responded, Sometimes Mommy thinks so. I'm not going to lie to you, kiddo. We really did mess up this planet quite a bit. Then she brightened up her voice. But don't you worry. Eat your pizza. I'm working with some very smart people on fixing things. We even made a new animal. Meet Sal, said Rashid, proudly gesturing to the window of the containment room adjacent to the lab. Among several investors and fellow scientists stood Maxwell Worth, a large white man in gold-rimmed glasses who might have been considered handsome if not for his oily black hair, making him look more like a shifty used car salesman than a scientist. He beamed at the others while clapping, 
trying to instill confidence and encourage amazement. In spite of his awkward performance, Daphne smiled as well. It had taken several years to get to this moment. The containment room was massive, large enough to house a small airplane with three-story-high ceilings. The impressive size worked against the reveal as everyone pressed against the glass, their eyes frantically searching around to find Sal in the vacant space. After a few seconds, one of the investors asked, Is it tiny? Like those jellyfish we looked at last year? Daphne dimmed most of the lights down in the containment room. She left on a bright spotlight from the ceiling and a few side lights which shimmered slightly. This almost gave the room an underwater feel. It still seemed empty, however. After a short time, the creature floated through the spotlight several meters up, and a few viewers audibly gasped. Sal was about the size of a large beach ball. Its inflated head sacks looked like two conjoined translucent dirigibles with a large rippled ridge across its top that ended in a purplish tip. It seemed to be coated with a thin speckled layer of green moss. On either side were two long, gelatinous tubes resembling the engines on jets. The base was a mass of bluish mauve polyps from which several gangly tentacles hung all the way down to the floor. They resembled unfurled purple intestines, curling and twitching a bit as they went. Isn't she beautiful? exclaimed Max. What kind of jellyfish is that? one woman asked with a mixture of disgust and awe. Max was about to answer when Rashid jumped in. It isn't a jellyfish or a she. It's more of a they. The siphonophore is not a single organism, but a copy of polyps that work together. At its essence, it is most primarily derived from a Phasalia physalis. We've bioengineered it to feed on carbon matter and gases, which helps it to produce biohydrogen like the jellyfish you saw before. The biohydrogen fills up its pneumatophore, which is a fancy way of saying gas sack, allowing it to rise in the air. It can release that gas with a siphon in the top ridge when it needs to modulate its altitude. Max pulled a cigar from his breast pocket and took center stage again like a circus barker. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the all-new flying Portuguese man of war. This time Daphne did give Rashid a sideways glare. He shook his head without words, saying, let him have his little moment. One of the investors spoke up. Why on earth would you make a man of war fly? Aren't they extremely dangerous? Max was ready to answer this. We're only in stage two right now. Stage one was proving that we could engineer a simple organism to convert carbon gases and to produce hydrogen, those little jellies. Stage two focuses on efficiencies around aerodynamics, feeding, and filtration. Stage three, the next one, the important one, is to prove we can extract the excess bioenergy. All of these are done in a fully contained lab setting. Stage four is when we further engineer the animal to remove the tentacles. They grow to be over 150 feet long and are very toxic, so yes, they definitely will need to go. This will be relatively easy because they're an entirely separate organism. The colony technically won't need them to eat with anyway after we've changed its core diet. During the final stage, We'll limit their growth and propagation ability so they are easier to control and maintain in the wild. If we can't prove out stages 1 through 3 in the safety of this lab, there would be no point in doing all of the work of stage 4 and 5. Luckily, we've already proven out stage 1 and are nearly done with 2. Most of the audience accepted the explanation, but the same investor pressed, But why the man of war in the first place? Why not just improve those little jellyfish? Rashid took the question. The Physalia has several inherent advantages, 
Being a siphonophore, it's easier to adjust specific dactylozooids and gastrozooids, or to add new simple organisms. For example, we've integrated a modified species of salp to allow self-propulsion so that it can seek out concentrations of carbon gases instead of being at the mercy of the windstream. Additionally, our intention is to one day have them floating in the lower troposphere in the sun all day. Water molecules in the air and incident sunlight are vital for the fuel conversion process. The man of war is one of the most UV-resistant creatures on the planet, making it ideal for the task. Max pulled attention back to himself by snipping off the end of his cigar with a cutter and then lighting it. This brazen affront to laboratory protocol brought wide eyes to the room. And now, a cigar, the customary way to congratulate a new baby into the world. He took a long pull on the cigar, then picked up a plastic tube that was connected to glass of the containment room. He blew the smoke through the tube and it curled its way out the other side. As the smoke lingered in the air, Sal stopped its current trajectory, then slowly turned and floated towards the window, giving everyone a much better look at it. Its tentacles squirmed around the area the smoke came in, smacking against the glass with surprising violence, causing a couple people to back away from the window. Suddenly the head sack inflated and it rose out of view, leaving only the dangling tentacles on display. Stage two, it can actively seek out carbon emissions and produce hydrogen. Max smiled, knowing he had a captivated audience. With your continuing support, we can work towards converting that into cheaply produced, sustainable fuel that goes a huge step beyond carbon neutral. Onwards to stage three. Stage three was not going well, thought Daphne. In the past eight months, secure funding had gotten the lab more scientists and better equipment. The front lobby was now decked out with several large saltwater aquariums filled with various jellyfish species and two enormous waterless tanks with the bioengineered floating jellyfish. A shiny new sign sat on the front of the building, boldly proclaiming that this was H2 the Max Labs. Daphne and Rashid had made excellent progress wrapping up Stage 2, including creating several dozen next-generation Physalia. The containment hangar had been enlarged further and now had a section for these immature ones and a section all for Sal. Sal continued to grow at a fast rate, now easily the size of a small couch. Its ability to remove carbon emissions that were fed into the containment room was at a higher capacity than the scientists had expected, and the increased food sourcing was the principal cause of his rapid growth. Despite these advances, however, it was proving nearly impossible to produce enough surplus hydrogen to accomplish anything beyond keeping the creatures airborne. Daphne sat at a table in front of Sal's side of the hangar, journaling the day's notes. Sal bumped up against the glass, which drew her attention. What's the matter, big boy? Jealous that I'm spending most of my days with the new progeny? An uncomfortable stillness overcame her as she felt a hovering presence behind her. She didn't have to turn to look to know that Max lurked over her. She felt his cold hands slide onto her shoulders and she froze. My, you are so tense, Max said in what he thought must have been a soothing voice. Daphne felt his grip tightening on her shoulders and her stomach turned. With experience, she casually shrugged him off, reaching for her coffee cup so as not to escalate his attention. Max, I have a lot of work to get done, she said quickly. Indeed we do he stated, seemingly oblivious to her subtle rebuke. She hated when he put his hands on her, but she had always been worried about losing projects when he had been her boss years before. He never overtly made a move on her, so she put up with his infrequent crossing of a line. 
It never seemed to raise to the level where she wanted to make a big issue out of it, but it always made her feel angry and embarrassed. She would tell herself that if it happened one more time, she would do something. Maybe she would when stage three was done and everyone was less stressed. Max, Rashid had an idea of how to further reduce sulfur and thereby disrupt the internal oxygen flow more. This could increase the catalytic activity of the hydrogenase enzyme. You should talk to him. He turned her chair around to face him. It's good that he's focusing on the problem. Is there something more you could be doing? I'm sorry, she said in accusation, but then realized he might have interpreted it as an apology and added, What the hell are you talking about? Daphne, we've wrapped up stage two, yet I still see you working with this thing. It's obvious that you are still obsessing over how to yield better results from the carbon filtering. They are good enough for now. I need 100% of your effort on solving for the hydrogen conversion. I'm not ignoring that, Maxwell. I just have some fresh carbon data to react to. I don't want to lose momentum. And I'm telling you to drop it. His tone was no longer even attempting to sound soothing. When he noticed her face flush with anger, he stepped back. Look, I know why you're here. I know you care more about fighting climate change than you do about the biofuel angle, and you know what? I'm completely fine with that, but if we don't show some meaningful progress on the potential of mass production and collection of the hydrogen, then we're going to lose all of this funding I got, and we're going to have to close down shop. I prioritize the carbon filtration above the biofuel to get you and Rashid to come on board. I don't regret that, but we are running out of time for what the people who pay us really want. Focus on just delivering the potential, or I'm going to have to bring in someone who will. You've already brought in some so-called experts who are more interested in quick results than good science. You already have a night shift going, which is probably just slowing us down because the communication with them is terrible and mistakes are happening. Maybe, Max, maybe this isn't a solvable hypothesis, she said, poorly trying to contain her anger. Hearing the quiver in her voice, he regained his position of power and simply said, Be a good girl and focus on the problem, Daphne. I know you and Rashid can do it. I'm counting on it. With that, he winked and walked out, leaving her infuriated. She looked back to the window and quietly said, Sal, I hate that man. The next few months only brought an increase in tension. Maxwell introduced an overly generous spot bonus to the first team that could produce results in Stage 3. This effectively turned poor communication between the day and night team to non-existent or even hostile communication. One day, Rashid found Daphne complaining out loud about the night team to Sal, and he pulled her to a side conference room. I don't think Sal is the sympathetic shoulder you are looking for. However, I guess I could bioengineer shoulders on him if you want. Daphne gave a weak smile and sighed. Look, Daphne, I know this isn't what you signed on for, and I'm sorry. Half of me regrets joining as well, but we've done some amazing things, and this is just a dark period. One way or another, we'll get through it, and when we do, we're only a couple more generations before our little guys will be everywhere, safely cleaning up the whole world. I appreciate you often reminding me of the big picture, Rashid. I haven't lost sight of it, and I think I'm just a little burnt out. It's been hard all around, especially with Ted on another tour of duty. Rashid nodded his head. You take two weeks off, okay? You haven't had a reasonable break in almost three years. We've already proved our worth to this project, and we all know, Max included, 
that if this fuel problem is crackable, the night crew will probably crack it first. Fresh eyes with something to prove. They've already made some prototypes of the micronetting for the energy harvesting platforms. Go spend some time with your boy. Daphne thought on this and then agreed. You're right. Thank you, Rashid. But I want you to call me if there are any developments. He smiled and shook his head. No. Take a real break. I won't call you unless there is an actual emergency. It was 2 a.m., nine days later, when Rashid called. Daphne, struggling to wake up, didn't fully understand his message. She could only make out the words, There has been an accident. I'm calling Max next. She threw on some clothes and grabbed her keys. Then, in a moment of clarity, she remembered that her husband, Ted, had been deployed out of the country for months. She could not leave Brian by himself, so she carefully woke him and led him to the car. She wrapped him in a blanket in his car seat and started the twenty-minute drive to the lab. The lab's parking lot was ominously quiet when Daphne pulled up. The air was heavy with the threat of rain and a thin mist crept down from the small hill behind the building. Most of the interior lights were off, as was the large H-to-the-max labs sign on the roof. Only a few other cars were littered about. Daphne recognized Rashid's white Subaru outback near the long pathway to the recessed front entrance of her workplace. She roused Brian and carried him to the door. He was partially awake but had no interest in walking for himself, though soon found he needed to when his mother put him down to fish for her keycard. Help me out, Brian. You can go back to sleep in Mommy's office in just a few minutes. The lobby felt unusually empty and dark, especially given its large size. The front half had a ceiling that went up all three stories with a wide central stairway leading to the second floor. The only illumination came from the various aquariums which cast wavy shadows throughout the entire space and from an array of blinking red lights on the console behind the reception desk. This caught Daphne's eye. She went around the desk to see that several motion detector alarms had been triggered. These were only for internal security and would not alert the police. On the left side of this panel was a black-and-white video monitor that cycled slowly through the various ceiling cameras. The first several camera views showed only eerily empty corridors and labs. She hadn't been here during the night shift before, but imagined that there would be activity on a slightly smaller scale than during the day. It shouldn't be this vacant. The next camera showed a back hallway, and for a split second she thought she saw something pass through the field of view. It was out of focus and gone before she could identify it. The next two cycles showed more empty labs, one of which had lights on. Clearly work had been done in there recently, but no one was in sight. Then the monitor switched to a location that was hard to identify, some sort of dark room or corridor. Off to the side, she could make out a disturbing image. It was hard to tell from this angle, but it looked as though a scientist had hung himself. The body was limp and dangling several feet off the ground. The head was out of the camera view, so she could not identify the individual. She mouthed the words, Oh, God. She quickly looked down at Brian, but he was playing with some stuffed jellyfish toys that were littered about the reception desk. She grabbed his hand and led him away from the monitor. Thinking about Rashid, she hurried down the west hallway towards their main lab room. When she turned the corner, she noticed that the door was ajar. Carefully, she approached it, trying to decide if she should call out for her friend. Something didn't feel right here, so she edged up to it and peered in. The room was only in slight disarray, but the accident became quickly obvious. 
The fifth glass window to the containment hangar was shattered inwards. She pushed Brian behind her and slowly made her way to that section. That portion of the hangar seemed to be mostly empty except for two nauseating sights. The first was the splattered remains of one of the next-generation Physalia. The head sack was completely gone, and the other polyps and tentacles were strewn about the floor. Next to it was the body of John, one of the newer members of the night shift. He wore a protective biohazard suit that was torn across the mask and upper torso. There wasn't much left of his face beneath it, and gore had spilled out from his chest cavity. She recoiled in horror, instantly knowing that somehow John had been part of a chemical reaction that erupted the creature's gas sack with a powerful explosion. She also realized it was lucky that it didn't chain react with the other siphonophores, or the explosion would have been much greater. She guessed that the proximity to the fifth window caused it to shatter and pull most of the volatile fire out of it. Had the other creatures been killed, the organic mess would also have been much bigger. However, this did beg the question of her. Where did the rest of them go? Daphne wanted to run out, but first she needed to know if Sal was still contained. She slid over to the first window and looked about within. The darkness made it nearly impossible to know if the partitions that separated Sal into his own area had been breached. She could almost make out a large shape in the back corner, but couldn't be sure. She tried turning on the floodlights, but they didn't work. As she leaned closer to the glass, a scream erupted. It came from the exit to the side hallway, which was also left open. She darted to that door, holding Brian very close to her. She wanted to leave him someplace safe or just get him back to the car immediately, but couldn't find it in herself to ignore the scream when it came a second time. The hallway was completely dark. Before entering, she grabbed a large flashlight from a supply cupboard near the door. She immediately regretted turning it on when she entered the hall. Before her were six or so of the creatures, silently hovering throughout. The first one was low to the ground, its tentacles wrapped around the collapsed figure of a woman. This was one of the smaller Physalia, and instead of lifting her, it brought itself down upon her. Through the mass of tentacles, Daphne could see that the woman's eyes were open in a death stare. She had welts all over. All of their bioengineering must have increased the lethality of the toxins. Daphne kept a hand on Brian to keep him back in the lab so he wouldn't see this. She moved the flashlight around to find another dead scientist. He was arched backwards, awkwardly suspended between two of the creatures. He rose and fell as if they were playing a gruesome game of tug-of-war. She heard a whimper and whipped the light towards the back. Beyond two more of the Physalia stood Rashid. He too was completely encased in tentacles. Rashid! she cried. One of his eyes was forced shut from toxins while the other looked in terror directly into the flashlight. He tried desperately to work his mouth. Finally, he said, Get out, Daddy. Get out, please. Panicked, she looked for something to help her get to him. Tears streamed down her face. It was obvious that Rashid was on his last breath. Please, Dahi. Rashid gave Daphne a final look and closed his eye, and his head lolled back. No! She yelled and then became aware that the unattached man of wars were starting to turn towards her. Her rational mind wanted to scream that it wasn't possible for them to detect her and come after her, 
but it was evident that they were able to somehow. The carbon dioxide from her scream would be far too diluted to trigger their sensors, or so she thought. Perhaps the vibrations from the noise. It didn't matter. She picked up Brian and ran back through the lab, into the main corridor, and around the corner to the lobby. Then she stopped. There in the lobby hovered the rest of the creatures. A dozen of them must have floated in from the other side while she was in the lab. They looked like an underwater minefield, spaced at different heights throughout. Brian looked up in wonder, similar to how he did with the little jellyfish when he was three. Daphne slowly slid a hand over his mouth and bent down to put her lips near his ear. Take a deep breath and try not to breathe out, honey. She made sure he followed the directions and then carefully inflated her own lungs and held her breath. Step by step, she guided the boy through the maze of tentacles. Generally, there was enough space between them, so long as the creatures didn't move about. Halfway through the route, she noticed one of them sailing across the room. She backtracked and plotted a different course. It didn't change direction to compensate, so she stood still until it passed completely. Knowing that she couldn't hold her breath or expect the child to hold his for much longer, she quickened their pace. They almost made it to the front door when Brian's blankets snagged on one of the tentacles and began dragging one of the Physalia behind them. Seeing this, Daphne grabbed the blanket and tossed it aside. More tentacles wrapped around it and instantly started to reel it up. At that, she broke into a run, pulling Brian behind her. Daphne opened the front door to find a downpour that was so heavy it was difficult for her to make out the cars in the parking lot only a hundred feet away. For a moment, she actually felt relief at the sudden rain. The creatures were small enough that they likely would be grounded as the weight of the rain would be too heavy for their gas sacks. She pulled Brian out with her and slammed the door behind them. The mob of Visalia crowded against the glass of the doors. At that moment, car lights spilled across the front of the building, partially blinding her. It was hard to visually determine the make of the car, but she recognized the distinctive sound of a Porsche coming to a stop. The lights turned off and she could make out the silhouette of a large man exiting the vehicle. There was a slight glow near his face. She called out, Max! but did not leave the shelter of the doorway despite the looming threat that was mere inches away. A faint voice called back. It may have shouted her name, but it was difficult to hear with the clattering of the rain on the pavement and car roofs. She pulled her coat up from her shoulders so it partially covered her and Brian's head and ventured out, immediately getting soaked. She called Max's name again, quickly closing his car door to minimize the water getting on his custom leather seats. Max took a drag on his cigarette to steal himself and then walked through the parking lot. His glasses streaked and fogged up right away, so he removed them. He hated feeling vulnerable, but his vision would have been useless with his glasses on. He got about halfway across the parking lot when he could make out Daphne and Brian's shapes. Now he could also hear what she was yelling. Max! They got out! It's horrible! He trudged forward and loudly responded. What do you mean? They're out of the building? He took another puff on his cigarette, trying to cover it so it didn't get soaked. No, she shouted back. I don't think so. They're freely roaming in the building. I don't think they can get out. I hope they can't. What do you mean? It's horrible, Max. They're all dead. Rashid, Jenny, John, Andrew, all of them. What? He didn't understand what she meant. 
He could hear her fine because the rain had suddenly stopped. He stopped as well, trying to make sense of her words. They're all dead? Rain continued to pelt Daphne and Brian. She could now clearly see Max. She gasped and backed up a step, putting her arm in front of her child. Max wiped his glasses on his shirt and put them back on. For a moment, things still seemed fuzzy, until he realized that it was still raining on Daphne. In fact, it was still raining all around him. It just wasn't raining on him. There was a good six feet in all directions around him that was free of rain as if he were under a giant umbrella. He looked up but only saw the darkness of the night above. An uncomfortable stillness overcame him as he felt a hovering presence. He didn't have to turn to look to know the thing lurked over him. He felt its cold tentacles slide onto his shoulders, and he froze. Daphne started yelling again, but continued to back up towards the building. Max felt the grip tightening on his shoulders, and his stomach turned. He felt intense pain as tiny barbs stung him and filled his skin with burning poison. He could feel his body being hoisted off the ground. His toes grazed a puddle as he kicked his legs back and forth. His glasses slipped from his nose and shattered on impact with the pavement. Finally, he spat out his smoldering cigarette and screamed. Daphne felt sick at the sight of her former boss being slowly pulled up like a marionette puppet into the darkness. She could barely make out the colossal shape of the man of war's distinctive ridged head sack that must have been more than fifty feet up in the sky. Massive tentacle-like appendages dangled down, constricting around Max. She looked around, helpless to do anything against the floating terror that she used to call Sal. Max suddenly stopped screaming. One of the tentacles had made its way into his throat. His eyes were wide and his body convulsed with searing pain as the poison traveled through his veins. As much as she had disliked Max, this was a terrible way to die and she knew there was nothing she could do to help him. His body had now been reeled up at least twenty feet in the air. She could feel her son trembling as he tugged on her coat. Instinctively, she ran with the child to her car. She put him in the front seat without bothering with seatbelts and then pressed the ignition button while closing the driver's side door behind her. Up in the sky, Max watched in horror as the tentacles lifted him towards the wriggling gastrozoid polyps. The toxins had mostly immobilized him by this point. Only his eyes and his hands could move. In a panic, he fished into his coat pocket. As he could feel the digestive mouths starting to latch onto his face, he produced his cigarette lighter. A final desperate look down at the lights of Daphne's car, and then he lit the lighter. At the first flicker of flame, Sal's top ridge siphon opened, an instinctual defensive maneuver used for releasing gas to rapidly sink away from predators. This was followed by a massive explosion. All of the hydrogen within Sal's pneumatophore sack burst into flame, consuming both Max and the Man of War. The intensity of it caused several exterior windows on the lab's second floor to shatter inwards. Daphne shielded her eyes from the blinding flash and tried to cover Brian. The car rocked back but was undamaged. She put the car into reverse as flaming remains showered down in the middle of the parking lot. She was about to slam her foot down on the pedal when she noticed the broken windows on the second floor. Dread filled her as she slowly realized the building was no longer sealed. With grim determination, she said, Honey, stay here. Don't go anywhere. Fire trucks should be here soon. 
I'll be right back. Where are you going, Mommy? I'm scared. I will be right back. Don't worry. I just need to make sure the door to that room up there is closed. If those creatures get out, they are going to multiply and go everywhere. She gave him a stern look, then exited the car and started for the front door. Seeing the mass of Visalia still in the lobby, she looked around and then changed course for the far side of the building. As she rounded the corner, she noticed that the delivery entrance was open. She saw a shoe on the ground a few feet from the door and surmised that someone from the night team tried to make a run for it, and this was most likely how Sal escaped. She hoped that the person got to safety, but doubted it. She closed the door behind her and mentally recounted all of the next generation she had encountered so far. She was fairly certain that Sal was the only one to get out this way. If she was lucky, all of the remaining creatures would still be in the lobby, and she could sneak up the stairs in the back side of the building. She hugged the walls, not trusting any areas of darkness. Unconsciously, she held her breath and eventually had to remind herself to take shallow breaths from time to time, or she would never make it up to the second floor. The stairway was empty and thankfully had emergency lighting to help guide her. When she reached the top, she turned around a couple times to get her bearings. She knew the place well enough, but it was hard to determine which upstairs conference room had the broken windows. She checked each one warily until she found the right one. It was a medium-sized break room where both large windows were shattered inwards with glass everywhere. At first she breathed out a sigh of relief, thinking it was empty. But just then the ominous shape of a man of war floated into the room from another open door. It was heading towards the gaping window. She quickly glanced around. Beside the creature was a janitorial closet. She inhaled a large gulp of air and rapidly slid along the wall to it. She fumbled at the knob, acutely aware of how close the strands of deadly toxin-filled tentacles were from her face. She didn't have much time. It was nearly to the window. She flung open the closet door and found what she was looking for, a large custodial push-broom. She grabbed it like a weapon and turned to face the man of war. Holding it with both hands in front of her, she used it to guide the creature around and back to the door. It squirmed and siphoned off gas to drop and avoid her but she mirrored the movement and continued to push it back. When it was in the frame, she gave it a massive thrust, hurling the broom like a javelin. When it had cleared the door, she slammed it shut. All of the creatures were now contained within the building. She was stuck in this break room, but was safe now and could wait it out until the fire department arrived. All she would have to do was call down to them when they arrived and detail what protective gear they would need. In the light of day, she knew she could lead the safe operation of corralling them all back into full containment. She went out to the window to check on her car and scout for the coming trucks. Outside the window before her, a single Physalia silently rose up. And then another. And another. She watched in horror as more floated by. They were several meters away, so she ran up to the window and looked down. Brian was at the lobby door holding it open and watching in wonderment as the remaining translucent blue bottle shapes floated past him, like helium-filled balloons released at a birthday celebration. He beamed up at his mother. Brian! What have you done? Daphne screamed down to him. The boy looked confused and embarrassed. Daphne tried to modulate her voice so as not to be yelling, but her stress was crystal clear. 
No, 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 you've let the monsters out, baby. No, Mommy. They're here to help clean the earth, remember? They aren't monsters. They didn't do anything to make the bad air. He smiled with a look of profound wisdom delivered in childhood innocence. Mommy, they'll get rid of the real monsters. High above, the man of wars floated off into the night, like the conquering Portuguese warships of the 18th century that they were named for. Kevin R. O'Hara enjoys employment as a creative director in the video game industry. He originally hails from Spencerport, New York, but promptly moved to the West Coast after graduating from Ithaca College's film school. He has worked various roles in the film and video game industry over the years, most of which involved creative writing and game design. He currently resides near Seattle, Washington, with his lovely wife, awe-inspiring daughter, and energetic Kieshand. Find him on Twitter at JoltedKev. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.